This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Hey, I'm Candace Slim. And I'm Rachel Hampton, and you're listening to ICYMI. In case you missed it. Slate's podcast about internet culture. And Candace, I have... I have an important question for you. We're still in our getting to know each other phase, so I'm just gonna be peppering you with questions for the next foreseeable future. And I think the question I'm about to ask you is maybe one of the most important I've asked so far. So you mentioned in your introduction interview that you were a Twilight girly. Specifically, Mm -hmm. that you answered Yahoo Answers questions about why the Cullen family in Twilight plays baseball during (laughs) thunderstorms, which means that I I have to ask, are you Team Edward or Team Jacob? Oh, my God. I think we should do like we did for the Robert De Niro versus Al Pacino debate where we just answer on three. Okay. 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 So we don't have an opportunity to change our answers. Okay. Mm -hmm. One, two. Three, Jacob. Team Edward. I'm sorry, what? <laughs> um, so, look, here's the deal. I am Team Edward um, for two reasons. The first one just being that it's pretty obvious that Stephanie Meyer's whole thing is that this is the Edward Cullen hero's journey. He was always, you know, the main character. He was always going to win. The second thing is I remember Breaking Dawn Part 1. I remember sitting in the Edwards Theater and thinking, oh, my God, Bella is getting dicked down by this sparkly snail. And I am a little curious. And I'm just saying, why would you deny the opportunity to break some Wayfair furniture? Yeah. uh, One, I hope it's better than Wayfair furniture because Edward Cullen is rich. That's A. B, I don't want to die. He's Mm. not worth dying over. The thing Mm -hmm. about Edward is he's very emo and not in a fun way. Second, canonically, Jacob Black is a man of color and I will always stand by my people. Okay? Okay. Taylor Lautner is a white man. That's unexcusable. However, (laughs) (laughs) Jacob was a man of color. He was fun. Uh. He built motorcycles. You could take him out to dinner without worrying about him having to throw up a ravioli later. There were a lot of reasons that Jacob was the better choice. Mostly that he just seemed like a better time. And I I left my case there. Obviously, we could talk about this forever because I think you're wrong. I think you're very wrong. Wow. We're going on Judge Judy. I hope you know that. Continue. Um, well, we'll wait for Judge Judy to adjudicate, but we have a show to do, which is about a topic I often think about in conjunction with Twilight because they took over my life around the same time. And that thing is Tumblr. Y'all out there listening were probably like, wow, Rachel's a co-host. She's probably going to stop talking about Tumblr. Joke's on you. Tumblr is forever. Mm-hmm. But today's episode is actually brought to you not by me, but by another Slate staffer, Luke Winky. Because back in March, Luke wrote this really great piece for the newsletter Dirt called 
urban outfitters literature. Remember when tumblers turned into picture books? And mm-hmm. I didn't remember until I read this piece. And then I remembered everything everywhere all at once. Mm, exactly. Because I think this piece really took both of us back into the mall. Okay. Mm-hmm. The carpet that was so dirty, you couldn't see your feet. And if you haven't walked in a mall in like the last five years, um, Luke's piece was talking about those small coffee table type picture books. You usually find them in like a gag gift corner at like Urban Outfitters or Kitson or like Barnes and Noble. And they were usually called something like Hipster Puppies, which is the title of an actual book that hit the shelves. And it was written by Christopher R. Weingarten. Or the Tumblr Garfield minus Garfield, where Dan Walsh took out the titular character Garfield from the comic strip and turned that into a whole book. Mm -hmm. Which, by the way, kind of reminds me of like the Big Bang Theory and how people would edit out the laugh track and it would Mm -hmm. just sound so dead. And you'd like ask yourself, is this show actually funny or does Sheldon just like want me to think (laughs) this is funny? It's definitely the latter. Luke also interviewed Rachel Fershleiser, who was the head of Tumblr's literary division. Wait, they had a literary division? Yes, because Tumblr is literature. And mm. she knew that. And she's now the vice president of Soft Skull Press. She talked to Luke about why publishers were so thirsty for these Tumblr blogs. And it might have had something to do with that specific Obama era, 2010, 2012 millennial humor. You know, like Lena Dunham, Lynn manuel Miranda... Mm, Rose all day. Uh huh. Uh huh. I mean, look, I'm already interested in Luke's piece because anytime we can dunk on LMM, I'm in. <laughs> I mean, same, though I'm going to just out myself and say I still definitely bump the Hamilton soundtrack from time to time. I will hold myself accountable. But I digress. Back to these Tumblr picture books. What was in the air during those? feverish days of the early Obama administration where people thought that race was over and that the publication of books like Hipster Puppies or Garfield Minus Garfield or This Is Why You're Fat was something worthwhile. We'll never know. That's a lie. We will know. We'll find out after a short break. Tired of not being able to get a hold of anyone when you have questions about your credit card? With 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime day or night. Yes, you heard that right. You can talk to a human on the Discover customer service team anytime. So the next time you have a question about your credit card, call 1-800-DISCOVER to get the service you deserve. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. This episode is brought to you by FX's The Veil, starring Elizabeth Moss. FX's The Veil is an international spy thriller that follows two women as they play a deadly game of truth and lies on the road from Istanbul to Paris and London. One woman has a secret, and the other has a mission to reveal it before thousands of lives are lost. FX's The Veil, now streaming, only on Hulu. And we're back with Luke Winky, a staff writer at Slate. Hello, Luke. How are you? Hey, guys. Thanks for having me on the show. Of course. Um, I'm a huge fan of your work. I feel like you really have this great intersection of deranged things on the internet and the things that I'm interested in. And I love that for both of us. It's true. What I, I just started here last week and my editor told me one of my beats was just weird things happening on Reddit. And 
that's what I'm all about. Wow. I'm so excited to figure out what weird things you dig up on Reddit. But before that, we have to ask you the question we ask everyone, which is, what is your very first internet memory? I hope it is as deranged as some of the things that you write about. Man, um, it was like the mid-90s. My parents like work in like a technology-adjacent field, and they just kind of set me up on the family computer with a browser. Just like, oh, you should check out the internet. Like, it took me some like game site or something. I can't remember. Like, I didn't really understand what it was for. I remember playing some, you know, pretty primitive, probably like pre-Flash games on some one of the web pages you ended up on. And I was thinking about that in the sense, I just don't know if parents quite do that now with the Internet <laughs> in circa 2023. But just being like, hey, you should check out the Internet. You should you should go see what's out there. I just I feel like uh, back then it was very new and very optimistic. And I think parents probably have not the same relationship with the internet now than they did back in those days. Exactly. And I mean, like, Luke, honest question, were you a a dial-up family? Is that the era we're in? Man, I don't think... I think at that part of my childhood, we were kind of post-dial-up. We were dial-up at one point. Like, I remember hearing the tone and my my parents getting online in that way. But I, I feel like by the time I was officially like surfing on the web we were we were at we were a broadband family but you know i'd have to check the tape on that one i don't know for sure i also have to imagine that when you first approached the internet you did not interact with something called tumblr.com no i was born in 1991 so tumblr was just a a twinkle in twinkle in someone's eye back in those (laughs) days Exactly. And so today we are having a conversation about an article you wrote, but the article involves Tumblr. So I just wanted to ask you, what's your Tumblr experience? When do you remember getting on it? What do you look at? Do you still use it? Yeah, some people are like deep Tumblr people that like, you know, are capable of like really waxing poetic about, you know, their their life growing up on Tumblr and getting kind of teary eyed about it. I was not like a Tumblr person to that degree. I would go to individual tumblers and look at the photos, but I was never part of I was never part of the community in the way that some people speak about it. A lot of my interactions with Tumblr back in those days were almost like derisive where I was on mm. an internet forum that was maybe a little bit more edgy and people like linking out to uh, you know, um some sweaty one direction erotica on Tumblr or the <laughs> the just girly things Tumblr, things of things of that nature. Oh. Uh so yeah, I, I I I was probably like a more of a Tumblr enemy the way I came up on the internet. I feel uh, not anymore. Obviously, I'm very pro Tumblr. I feel like you were just dragging me um, by accident. <laughs> oh, us, us together. I really feel like I entered a different plane when you said One Direction erotica and just girly things. <laughs> mm-hmm. Tumblr dot com. And it's a it's honestly a pure plane. Let's go back. Let's go back to that. <laughs> <laughs> no, this is like not to get ahead of ourselves. Like when I wrote. Uh, the article we're going to talk about, the the one thing that kind of pops up is just kind of how innocent and pure and less ironic the internet was. Very Obama era, very first term Obama era back in those those early Tumblr days. You are perfectly leading us into our interview, which is about the article you wrote and the Obama era that it came out of. So mm-hmm. tell us a little bit about this article and how it came to you. What, Where were you sitting when you thought, Where'd those Tumblr picture books go? I think I was thinking a lot about Urban Outfitters and the kind of clothes I would buy from Urban Outfitters, which, you know, were were just had no mercy on my my round table pizza paychecks. You know, I just was not not really able to splurge too much. 
And that was something that was so kind of, you know, that was part and parcel with Urban were these picture books, basically adult picture books that were kind of, you know, kind of cheeky, kind of, you know, um, kind of memey that were based off these tumblers. And they would just kind of be out there kind of in like the, uh, you know, your, your checkout aisle, um, your Garfields minus Garfield or whatever. And, mm-hmm. uh, and it, I guess like I was just thinking, man, that really was a flash in the pan, right? There was like this like, like two year period where you could actually get like a publishing deal off of a Tumblr. And then that market just sort of disappeared immediately. And I thought it would be interesting to talk to some of the folks that managed to turn their Tumblr into a book deal to see if they made any money off of it, how they remember that era. I thought maybe there could be like a con man like element of like, I can't believe I, I, I rode those, <laughs> that publisher to give me a deal off the stupid blog I came up with. And uh, mm-hmm. so, yeah, started sending some emails and wanted to talk to the people that, that struck it big on Tumblr during the very, very small at- amount of time that that was possible. The only people who ever made money on that platform, truly. <laughs> I love that setup because you use the phrase adult picture books. Your article is basically about Tumblr posts becoming picture books. And that phrase picture books kind of struck me a little bit because I was like, you know, I unfortunately only think of children reading those. And in a similar comparison, I think we are just as a society getting over the fact that animated films, for example, aren't just for kids. You know, there's so many great award-winning animated films made for and by adults. So like Isle of Dogs or Enter Galactic from Kid Cudi or Wendell and Wild. Um, I wanted to ask you a little bit about the distinction between the picture books that urban shelling that are being created from the throes of Tumblr and how they're kind of different from like comic books or graphic novels or basically any illustrated piece of art for an adult audience. Yeah. I think the one distinguishing factor is they were, they were kind of trying to be these coffee table books for people that were like way outside of the age demographic to have coffee tables or coffee table books, you know, like they were, (laughs) these they were they were marketed towards probably people in their early 20s you know people that were like you know maybe at least tertiarily aware of what tumblr was and wanted to you know have like a physical copy of it and uh i think for me as someone that spent a lot of time online that was one of the first moments seeing those books and kind of around you know stores like urban you know my friends apartments or whatever where i was like wow the internet kind of is just culture now you know this stuff that existed like entirely in cyberspace that just felt like so divorced from like mainstream culture to kind of see like nice glossy book with all these uh internety jokes you know these days I don't, I don't think any of us would think anything of that that's just how life works but at the time it almost felt like the uh tide was starting to turn millennials were taking a more paramount kind of place in culture that you know our dumb internet jokes were were worthy of being sold for twenty five ninety nine while waiting to check out with your uh, skinny cords at Urban Outfitters. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I recently was like in a Barnes and Noble and in the corner of this Barnes and Noble, there were just a bunch of these picture books that I think fall into this category you were writing about, Luke, and they were under the category sale, but they were also under the category gag gifts. And I think you touched upon this in your article about how these Books weren't necessarily considered literature, but they were considered gag gifts. They were used as this idea of like, ah, I wouldn't buy this for myself, but like, I think that'd look really good on my friend's Wayfair (laughs) coffee table. (laughs) Um, When the publishing industry started buying 
these tumblers, turning them into books. Do you feel like artists were able to retain the creativity and artistry or do you sense that there was some type of like selling out or like watering down that kind of happened once it entered the machine? I don't, I don't know if I would say selling out is, exact, mm-hmm. is exactly what the, the term I would reach for. What I will say is that one person I spoke to like really approached his Tumblr in a really mercenary way. He had a Tumblr called Hipster Puppies, which um, is a bunch of photos of, of dogs with, you know, horn rim glasses or, or flannel mm-hmm. shirts on them with, you know, some pithy caption about, you know, the music they listen to or whatever. <laughs> um, and that was a completely intentional ploy to try to get a book of, you mm. know, I'm, I'm seeing all these picture books out here. I'm, I'm seeing all these Tumblr books that are blowing up. I know if I put some photos of some, of some puppies with glasses, I'm going to like a publisher is going to reach out to me if I get enough people to subscribe to it. And, you know, I'll be in every urban outfitters in America. And that was a very, mm-hmm. it was a very like intentional, Battle plan. There's not a lot of soulfulness in the uh, genesis of hipster puppies. Maybe the original wave of people that, you know, just enjoyed photoshopping Garfield out of uh, Garfield comic strips. And, you know, all of a sudden they were reached by a publisher. It's like, oh, this is crazy. This little silly passion project I did. Now I'm I'm turning it turning into a book. But like I got the sense that pretty clearly um, people saw that this was a um a model to exploit and to make some money off of uh, within the realm of Tumblr. So in that case, you can't really soul out or you can't really like lose your spirit in the kind of corporate publishing grind, right? Because uh, that's exactly what you wanted to enter is the is the corporate publishing grind. And also the most important thing, uh, these books were pretty easy to put together. You know, the, you are you are basically copying and pasting what's in your Tumblr. Uh, pretty content lights, I would say. What's funny about these Tumblr picture books, which is that no one on Tumblr, I think, would actually buy these books. They kind of always have yeah. this veneer of hipsterism, but not in the hipsterism that Tumblr really loved. Yeah, or like I, I spoke to, in the story, I spoke to the person that was head of Tumblr publishing at this time, and you know, I kind of put it to her. I was like, what were these books for? And she said, you know, back in those days, not everyone was on the internet in the way that people are now. Like it's easier to imagine someone in 2009 of not being able to find and parse uh, a blog like uh, this is why you're fat. That was a blog of uh, just really horrific American food items that I think netted a huge book deal once they, once they turn it into a book, there was more of a use case back in those days of just people that weren't really able to, understand or get on Tumblr or kind of understand that culture to actually, you know, find a book and page through it to, and, you know, have it make them laugh. Like, you know, there was, you know, this is also kind of like we're the borderline of like the kind of iPhone and iPad revolution. You know, this was a pretty desktop laptop, <laughs> you know, based culture. So, so yeah, yeah. I, I, I do think that there, that this stuff was a bit like on the shoulder between the, the total internet singularity that we, that we live in now. Mm-hmm. No, I think that totally makes sense. And I actually think this is a good spot to take a short break. When we come back, we'll talk to Luke about the millennial humor that caused these books to skyrocket. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Hey, listeners, whether you love true crime or comedies, celebrity interviews, news, or even motivational speakers, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue, right? And guess what? Now you can call the shots on your auto insurance, too. Enter the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. The Name Your Price tool puts you in charge of your auto insurance by working just the way it sounds. 
You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance. Then they'll show you a variety of coverages that fit within your budget, giving you options. Now, that's something you'll want to press play on. It's easy to start a quote, and you'll be able to choose the best option for you, fast. It's just one of the many ways you can save with Progressive Insurance. Quote today at Progressive.com to try the Name Your Price tool for yourself and join over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company & Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify. The global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hi, ICYMI listeners. If you love our podcast, then consider subscribing to Slate Plus. There are no ads on any Slate podcast, and this is the best way to support the podcast because this show would not be possible without your support. Slate Plus helps keep the show going. And with Slate Plus, you can get bonus segments or episodes for shows like Slow Burn, Hit Parade, or Dear Prudence. There's unlimited reading on the Slate website, which means you get access to every article and advice column on on Slate. You'll never hit the paywall. Visit slate.com slash ICYMI plus to sign up. That's slate.com slash ICYMI plus. And we're back. So when Rachel and I read your piece, Luke, we both kind of loved how you poked fun at this very appropriate phrase to describe the humor of these books. You use this phrase, Obama-era millennial taste, to describe the types of tumblers that became picture books. You asked this question that I thought was really smart, which was, what was going on in the late 2000s milieu that made our memes so much brighter and optimistic and more vulnerable compared to the irony, poison, nihilism that circulates through our timelines in the 2020s? And one of your sources suggests that that change was caused by the rise of algorithmic feeds. And I'm wondering if you agree with that. I've been trying to crack this question for years now to figure out, like, why the Internet felt different back in those days. I do think that's as good of an answer as I've heard that, like, there's something about just not having the content immediately sorted and and served up to you as soon as you you log on somewhere, having to kind of seek it out a little bit more and kind of curate it yourself. I don't know. I think that there was something kind of uh, more personable, more wholesome about that. And there was a good piece in Defector recently just about how big the internet used to feel, you know, where we weren't always kind of funneled into basically the four websites that matter that we go to every day that none of us seem to like. Um, you know, you can kind of really do some internet exploring in, in a more real way back in those days. It still felt fairly new back in the rise of Tumblr and it was more delightful. There was just more optimism about it. You know, it was more exciting to see what you'd what you turned up, even like the gross parts of the internet um, weren't as gross as they are now. But I do think the algorithmic uh, curation that d- d- does kind of uh, does kind of affect that. 
we also brought up the algorithm because I was thinking a lot about Urban Outfitters and just maybe the reason Urban was such a perfect place for these picture books is because it made every discovery seem really organic, right? Like your friend would be shopping for shirts, graphic tees. Your other friend is by the vinyls. That's a whole other conversation. And here you are looking at a cactus with a face and being like, whoa, look at this picture book where Garfield isn't in Garfield. Isn't that so funny? And I just think there's something about the way that retail stores create an algorithm that kind of tricks you into thinking you're the first person who's ever seen this, created this, bought this, whatever, whatever. Um, And as we speak to that, I did kind of want to flip over and talk a little bit about the numbers and like the financials of this entire lineage. Um, In your reporting, did you find out anything about like how much these people made from like selling their books to publishers and stuff like that? Yeah, the people I talked to, no one made like truly life changing money. You know, it was, you know, they, they, they did okay. It was a nice, especially if you're a freelancer, you know, you're happy for that payout. Uh, I mean, the dirty secret of publishing is no one makes any money off of books <laughs> for the most part. I mean, that is, uh, that is the truth. Uh, but you know, uh, considering the effort that it takes to put together a Tumblr book where you are, you know, sourcing some funny photos and clearing them and basically kind of cannibalizing your own contents in a hardcover book. Uh, you know, you got to feel pretty good about, you know, making like, I, I have, I have to go look at the exact numbers, but it was like, you know, 10,000, 15,000, somewhere in that ballpark, really nothing, nothing life-changing, but, uh, but you know, again, you know, it's, it's better than $0, which is what <laughs> most tumblers made. Mm -hmm. Which I think is I think the point I'm also trying to get to is like, you're right. It's not life changing money. It might be like year turbo tax changing money. Mm -hmm. But the other thing is this type of pipeline is maybe not for full time authors. It's for comedians who like have a funny Tumblr and like maybe can get a new revenue stream, which is kind of the same philosophy of like celebrities doing podcasts. It's like, no, Rachel Bilson is an actress. She just also wants to do this podcast for fun. Um, But yeah, that that kind of makes sense that like this might not be the most lucrative way to go, but like it is something and something might be better than nothing. Yeah, yeah, for sure. I mean, you know, we're talking mostly about this in the context of, of Tumblr, but like kind of in that same era, there were a lot of like Twitter comedians that just got books of their tweets published, like the the the, the famous shit my dad says guy who was like the first Twitter celebrity. Mm-hmm. He got a TV show out of that. He got a book deal out of that he's still working he's still writing for tv i think um you know still has a real career uh all off of a twitter account i i think there was in general like and maybe this is weird to say and you guys might disagree with it but like i feel like there is like in a weird way like more kind of upside to becoming famous online in that in in those early days just in terms of it Mm. just being so new of like you know, you can kind of get like, you know, you can get a book deal off of having 50,000 followers on Twitter back in those days, which obviously you could do that now. But um, I don't know. I, I just feel like it, it, it's a little more ordinary to uh, to have any kind of following online. Like back in those days, I feel like people were really coming out you to to really reward you for that. I, I'm, I don't know how true that is, but I, I feel like it's true. I feel like that's true as well. There's just a lot more internet fame to go around. So back in the day to be internet famous felt like something extraordinary versus now your average college student at NYU can have a million followers on TikTok and that doesn't really net them much. There also seemed 
we're talking about really kind of traditional modes of media, like book publishing, television shows. That route from internet fame to those traditional modes is like a lot different now. Now you can be mm-hmm. internet famous for much longer and get the kind of upside of that, which is like a BarkBox deal <laughs> sponsorship. <laughs> But actually landing like a Harper's Collins deal is, I think, a lot rarer for the average influencer. It's something I touched on in the piece that like maybe there is a chance to make more money in a more sustainable way long term when you're famous on the Internet now. But the way you have to do that is just seems more depressing where it's (laughs) Mm. Instagram sponsored content or, you know, your your BarkBox subscription. (laughs) your your first bet FanDuel discount code or whatever. Um, you know, there is something maybe a little bit more wholesome and, and godly about like, <laughs> oh, I got famous online and now I have a book of my posts that you can buy if you, <laughs> if you so want. There's something better about that than putting out like same game parlays on the Jets game or whatever. I, I don't know. I, I I do believe that. Yeah. Yeah. So we're kind of talking about publishing and I couldn't help but notice that most of the people you mentioned in your article were white men. And I was wondering if that's a reflection of who was getting these deals in that era, because that also kind of falls into like what influencer sponsorships look like now. Yeah, no, it's a good point. Like, because when you think of like Tumblr at the time, there's so many people of color and, you know, it was so LGBTQ, like, I don't know, like that, that was that is kind of the legacy of the platform. And mm-hmm. it is, maybe I wasn't looking hard enough. Maybe I could have done a better job reporting the story. But like, it, it is kind of interesting that like the people that bubbled to the top were, you know, kind of white dudes that all like work in marketing or <laughs> or, or technology now. <laughs> like that, that seems to be the general clientele. Um, yeah. Yeah, I don't, I, I, that, that, is a, that, that is a shame. You know, I don't think it's necessarily crazy or wild that a lot of the people who were making money off Tumblr turned picture books were white were white men. My theory on it is just that I think that Urban Outfitters is low-key kind of a flattening of pop culture. I Mm. think they just always knew how to get the most eyes, which is to be the most relatable, flattened version possible, the most mainstream possible. And another site that reminds me of this is unfortunately BuzzFeed, which was very big at the time, too. Mm -hmm. Now, BuzzFeed has evolved. I mean, Quinta Brunson got in there, Justin Tan got in there, and they were able to kind of create something more specific, more for people like me and Rachel. But I do think something that I'm kind of also turning back to is the fact that, like, could this Tumblr picture book thing happen in 2023? Like, Luke, do you think there's a compatible parallel the internet doesn't doesn't really work that way anymore. I, I don't mm. know. Yeah. Like yeah. Like the idea of the entire publishing industry like circling around like one thing that's happening mm. online. I just don't know if that's really the ecosystem or economy that that we kind of live in anymore. I feel like one of the underlying themes we're talking about in that period is there's there was this real shock that you can make money off of social media where I feel like now anyone who opens an account in 2023 is aware of the possibility of monetization. And I'm wondering if you feel like that kind of specter of profit impacts the kind of content that gets published online. So much of the Tumblrs we're talking about, even the early Twitter feed, so much of like the content that existed, the user generated content that existed on the internet in those days seem to really just come from a place of like like 
hey, look, I can make this thing. I'm going to do this thing. I'm going to post a photo, the same photo of uh, the cast from Full House every day. Isn't that (laughs) funny? You know, Uh, or I think it was one. It was Dave Coulier, I believe. That is the Tumblr. Uh, Uh, mm -hmm. And like I said earlier, like almost within a couple of years, a guy was trying to crack the code and, you know, to get his hipster puppies uh, project off the ground. Um, Yeah, I like, you know, I don't know. We go online all the time and see hilarious jokes or, you know, really salient takes or kind of mind-blowing stuff uh, that doesn't feel particularly profit-motivated. But um, uh, I guess, like, it is sometimes kind of a bummer when you see someone blowing up online for something that they that they made that's really cool and you can kind of already see their wheels turning of how to kind of capitalize on it or what their next step's going to be or how they're going to you know what they should outfit their link tree with or you know <laughs> what what merch they're going to print um all that kind of stuff uh like people really look at it as like a way out from wherever mm, they are yeah. they are currently are like okay finally and you know like, i think everyone's kind of guilty if you've like the even people in the media are kind of guilty of feeling that like that sometimes, you know, like, okay, cool. This, I wrote this thing did well. So how am I going to capitalize on this? How do I, how can I kind of exploit it? Um, so I don't think it's specific to like people that were on Tumblr necessarily, but um, I guess that's the thing that I, that I think wasn't always the case. Like the, the real feeling that like uh, that whatever, whatever cool thing you make, has to be a stepping stone into, you know, cashing in or kind of building your brand. You know, you can't really blame them, you know, like, I mean, I, 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 don't, I don't think you blame anyone for feeling that way. But um, I do think that has sort of changed um, the way, the, the shape of the internet, certainly. All right, that is the show. We'll be back in your feed on Saturday, so please subscribe. It is the best way to never miss an episode, to never miss me telling Candace that she's wrong for being team Wow. Please leave a rating and review an app with Spotify. Tell your friends about us. Tell your werewolves about us. Not the vampires, though. You can follow us on Twitter at ICYM underscore pod, which is also where you can DM us your questions like, remember when those books were tumblers? And you can also always drop us a note at ICYMI at Slate.com. ICYMI is produced by Sierra Spragley-Ricks, Rachel Hampton, and me, Candice Lim. Daisy Rosario is our senior supervising producer. And Alicia Montgomery is Slate's VP of audio. See you online. Or at Urban Outfitters. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile. And the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger. Offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.